Good morning, church family. It's good to see you. Today we're going to continue on in uh, Luke's gospel as we finish off chapter 7. So if you'd like to turn and follow with me, you can. Okay, so you know that moment when you see and and you you appreciate something way more than uh, someone else does. And it's not shared by the other people. I I think about this when I see 14-year-old girls crying in the sight of Justin Bieber. That's not my response when I see the Biebs. Uh, And then there's the people who are dressed in full-blown Boba Fett gear at the new Star Wars movie. Great movies. I don't love them that much, though. Just not there. But it gets personal for me as I stand to my feet during the month of October with my rally cap on for a full count pitch as the Astros have the tying run at second base. Uh, yeah, there we go. <laughs> I think that was my dad, so we, I, this comes naturally. Uh, and, and as they get that clutch hit to tie the game, I'm clapping, I'm shouting. And I'm in my living room, and, and my lovely wife, my, my kids may, may run into the room, they're probably asleep, I'm probably waking them up uh, sometimes, and, but my lovely wife will lower the book that she's reading, <laughs> and she will grin at me, and she might enjoy the happiness of the moment, but then back to the book. Two people, same event, very different reactions. Today, we're going to see two very distinct approaches to Jesus. Same house, same Jesus, but two very different responses. And as we consider these very different people, I want us to consider what the response of our lives says about our approach to Jesus. And as we do so, we're going to answer three questions. How do we approach Jesus? Number two, What is our greatest need? And number three, how do we respond to Jesus? Let me pray for us. Father, you are so kind to us that we would be here, that we would would have ears that, that, that could hear the scriptures read out loud to us. Father, that, that for those who, who've trusted you in this room today, that, that we would have your spirit. And God, would, would you help us now today by your spirit? Would you give us ears to hear? Father, would you protect me from saying something I shouldn't? And, would, and would, you, would, you, would you help us to hear the things we should? And so God, we need you. We need to meet you in your word. Would you be so kind to do that for us? And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, number one, how do we approach Jesus? So just as, as we get started here at the top, I, I, I just want to acknowledge this is one of, this is one of my favorite interactions in, in Luke. And so it gives me even just a little bit of trepidation just walking through it. Um, but, but beginning in verse 36, we see these two distinct approaches. So look, uh, we just read this. Uh, starting in verse 36, we read that then one of the Pharisees invited him, that's Jesus, to, meet with, uh, to eat with him. He entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. So we see approach number one. This is the approach of the Pharisee. 
Now, we don't learn a lot about this Pharisee in this first verse. Later, we're going to find out that his name is Simon. Uh, But what do we see initially? First, remember who the Pharisees are. Pharisees serve often as a foil for Jesus's ministry. When we see or hear from a Pharisee, we're usually hearing someone with a skewed understanding of who Jesus is and often a sinful response to who he is. And this isn't so that we'll read about the Pharisees and what they do and what they say and that we'll have some smug response to them. Oh, I wouldn't do that. Man, those Pharisees, man, they are lost. Uh, no, that would be a, that'd be a Pharisee way to see the Pharisees. Uh, instead, we're supposed to be humbled by their response. The Pharisees represent the unbelieving, judgmental way that our wicked hearts may act or think toward others and, uh, and towards Jesus. And apart from the Spirit, this is who we are, who we would be. Second, notice the Pharisee invited Jesus into his house. That means he has some level, at least of curiosity with Jesus. It may be an unbelieving, misinformed uh, interest, but it's, it's interest. And then notice that Jesus goes. So often in the, in the gospels, Jesus is accused uh, of eating and drinking with sinners and tax collectors but he also doesn't ignore the older brothers. He, he goes. What an example to us. He, he answers our questions, even when their motives are questionable. He, he takes their dinner invitations. And maybe that, maybe that bothers you or that makes you not thrilled. But aren't you glad? Aren't you glad he does such things? Aren't you glad that he comes to you in your self-righteousness? And lastly, this Pharisee is... He's oddly casual with Jesus. He doesn't give Jesus the VIP treatment at all. He doesn't wash his feet, doesn't offer a kiss. He's not even close to rolling out the red carpet for Jesus. He's basically using the paper plates. He doesn't want to get the dishes dirty with just Jesus. Contrast that to the Gentile centurion that we met just, just earlier this chapter. What did that man say about Jesus coming to his house? As Jesus got near to come heal the man's servant, he said, oh, I'm not worthy that you would even come under my roof. This is a Gentile soldier saying, I'm not worthy. But here we have a Jewish scholar, just a few verses later, seeming, seeming to take Jesus lightly. And so as Jesus sits at the Pharisee's house, we meet our second character in verse 37. And a woman in the town who was a sinner found out that Jesus was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house. She brought an alabaster jar of perfume and stood behind him at his feet, weeping, and began to wash his feet with her tears. She wiped his feet with her hair, kissing them and anointing them with perfume. So approach number two is the woman. I want you to imagine this scene. Like, just picture it. It's such a a vivid scene. Jesus is reclined at the table, The meal is underway. His feet would have been stretched out behind him with his head closer to the table. This was kind of a normal position uh, for eating. I I personally tried to recreate this pose this week. It took me several minutes just to get back up. Uh, But Jesus had better knees than I do. I I know it. it. It's implied that the Pharisee is there too. So they're sitting there at the table. Uh, And the Pharisee is there too, likely across from Jesus or maybe at the head of the table. And then there's servants that are probably around them attending to them as they eat. 
Now, homes at this time were, uh, especially the main living areas, would have been much more open, open air, kind of open windows, uh, much more than, than we, certainly than we have now. Lots, lots of ability for the watching world to kind of peer in. And so imagine as they're eating and talking, a stranger walks in, not to the table, but behind Jesus. Think of the sort of courage that it would have required for this woman to walk into the home of a Pharisee. Luke calls her a woman uh, in the town or of the town, a sinner, he says. Most scholars believe that that's, that's Luke, Luke is letting us know that this is likely a prostitute. But here she is, she's in the house, and, and what's her plan? Like, what's she, what's she planning to do? She walks up behind Jesus, she has this jar of perfumed oil that she has brought, but whatever her plan was, before she can even speak, her emotions just begin to spill out. And she just stands there at, behind Jesus, weeping. And her, and her tears begin to fall, running down her face and landing on Jesus' feet. Something, something released within her. And the tears just keep coming. This isn't like, this is messy crying. Enough to where she has to kneel to begin to wash Jesus' feet. And, and, and she doesn't have a towel. So she lets down her hair to begins washing his feet with her hair. This, is, this would have been culturally extremely inappropriate. She's, she's letting down her hair, which is, is, is not good. And then she's also touching a rabbi with her hair. Uh, but the whole thing is seemingly very spontaneous. She's just reacting as these emotions are coming out of her. None of this is standard operating procedure. She moves from washing his feet to kissing his feet, which would have been reserved for an extremely reverent interaction. And then, and then she breaks open this, what would have been a sealed, expensive jar of oil and begins to anoint his feet with it. Anointing was usually for the head, but to anoint the feet. This is extreme humility. She's taking the position of the lowest of the low in the room. And this whole series, certainly this had to have taken minutes at least. I can only imagine the whole room just kind of went into slow motion, it's just kind of looking at this woman. And, and it seems like she, she doesn't care. She doesn't care that all eyes are fixed on her. And without even knowing her story, I think we can all feel it, like something really weighty is happening in this moment. We've gone from an innocuous meal to what I think is one of the most beautiful scenes in the New Testament. So who is she? The answer is we really don't fully know. Many believe that she must have had a previous interaction with Jesus, maybe hearing his message of forgiveness as part of the crowds, maybe hearing it at secondhand from others who had been there, or maybe there, has, maybe there was an unrecorded meeting that Jesus had with this woman uh, that Luke didn't write down for us. All, all we know is this. What Jesus had done for her had made him precious to her. He had indelibly changed her life. 
to the point that, that because of Jesus, all she could do was cry and kneel down and serve him. But not everyone is impressed. We see in verse 39, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, this man, if he were a prophet, would know who and what kind of woman this is and who is touching him. She's a sinner. So we've got two approaches, the humility and the reverence of the woman, and then this prideful condescension of the Pharisee. Notice the Pharisee doesn't say, oh, poor woman, she's weeping. Maybe one of the other ladies in the house could come and, and, and be near her and console her. And look what honor she's showing to our guest. No, that's not what he's saying at all, is it? Remember, the Pharisees are separatists. And a separatist doesn't see a hurting woman. In fact, he has no interest in helping at all. He sees a sinner. And Pharisees are interested in sinners in so much as they can show everyone how far they stay away from them. Oh, I wouldn't go near her. I can't believe he's letting him that close or letting her that close. Sinners were part of the Pharisees' platform. See how holy I am. Not like them. And praise God that he does not use us like a prop. Praise God that the Lord Jesus, as holy as he is, does not say separate from us. No, he ministers to the prodigals. And he even sits and reclines with the Pharisee. But when the Son of Man welcomes us in our filth, when he makes us clean, he also opens our eyes to see others and to have compassion toward them. And that hasn't happened for the Pharisee, has it? He doesn't see someone in need of mercy. He sees a contaminant to avoid. And in his self-righteousness, he doesn't want to learn from Jesus. Jesus is there so that he can evaluate Jesus. And when Jesus doesn't reject this filthy woman, the Pharisee finds Jesus wanting. He was a prophet. He would know to avoid such disgusting people like this. Clearly, he's not as important as I thought. And so on cue, as if to say, Simon, you don't know what you're seeing. Simon, this isn't Justin Bieber. This is something way better. Something awesome is happening here and you're missing it because you don't have eyes to see. This is what Jesus says to him in verse 40. Jesus replied to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. <clears throat> Which if Jesus said that to me, that's not, I'd be fearful. He said, say it, teacher. Which leads to number two. What is our biggest need? Jesus proceeds to tell a story to Simon. He said in verse 41, a creditor had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. Since they could not pay it back, he graciously forgave them both. So which of them will love him more? Simon answered, I suppose the one he forgave more. Which, side note, sounds like a pretty grudging answer from Simon. I suppose. You almost see, feel like the eye roll in those words. I suppose the one who he forgave more. Sure, Jesus. I'm gonna answer your little riddle here. And Jesus answers him. You've judged correctly, he told him. Verse 46, turning to the woman, he said to Simon, 
do you see this woman? Did Simon see the woman? He didn't see a woman. He didn't care about her. She was a problem. And now Jesus is gonna say, you didn't even see her, but you didn't see me either. Look at, what, look at the comparison. I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she with her tears has washed my feet and wiped them with her hair. You were too busy evaluating me to serve me, but she did. Verse 45, you gave me no kiss, but she hasn't stopped kissing my feet since I came in. This would have been a sign of love, a sign of familial love, care, friendship. Verse 46, you didn't anoint my head with olive oil, but she's anointed my feet with perfume. You couldn't even give olive oil to anoint me, but here she is. I mean, clearly the woman's reception of Jesus is, is better, but why? Why such different reactions? Simon treating Jesus as a common house guest while the woman is treating him as a person of honor. But what's, what's significant about their responses? Look at verse 47. He says, therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven. This isn't a complicated story. This little story that Jesus stops and tells. The woman was the debtor who owed the great debt, right? The 250 denarii, nearly two years wage. But when she met Jesus, her insurmountable debt was erased, forgiven. So her love, her honor, this is the only response that makes sense. For one whose debt is massive, who has many sins, we read, but now forgiven. Let me tell you how the Lord really impressed this upon me in the scriptures the last few weeks. Uh, for those who follow along in our uh, community Bible reading plan, the CBR, uh, you know that last month uh, we were, right, right as we approached Easter even, uh, it was really exciting. We were nearing Easter and what were we reading about in Exodus? We were reading about the law and about some just really seemingly tough passages. So good for you. If you stuck with it and you pressed on, way to go. You did good. But what did we get there? We got, in the second half of Exodus, we get the Ten Commandments. And then we get several chapters all about the laws of God. What God's holiness requires when dealing with all these different situations. What would happen if you killed your neighbor's animal? Uh, what would happen if you stole? It addresses all of them. Stealing, murder, sexual immorality, and then after that, if, if, that was, if that wasn't exciting enough, uh, in beginning in chapter 25, we get chapter after chapter about the tabernacle that God wants them to build. What material to use for the curtains? How long should they be? What color should the fabric be? What kind of clasps should hold it together? Instructions for building the Ark of the Covenant, the specific type of wood, the gold ornamentation that would go on top of it. What would go inside the Ark? How long should the poles be that would help to carry the ark of God's presence from place to place? How should we make the fittings that would attach the poles to the ark? Even the specific dimensions and materials for the mercy seat where God himself said he would meet with the people. God gives them, here's how you build this. We get a whole section on the dimensions of the courtyard. What size area should it be? Which, which direction should it face? What type of curtains should be there? And then, of course, the all-exciting, what kind of garments should the priests wear? 
what type, length, color of cloth, what sort of head covering should they have, what sort of jewel stones will be on their breastplate, signifying God's faithfulness to the tribes of Israel. Why? Why does this matter? And how on earth, and why am I even introducing it as we're talking about Jesus sitting down for dinner at the Pharisee's house? Listen, the overwhelming and consistent testimony throughout the scriptures is this, God is holy. He is not like us. He is perfect. He is righteous, so righteous that his presence is not to be trifled with. Why? Because when sinful men or women enter his presence the wrong way, they die. That's how good and perfect God is. Sinners can't draw near to that sort of holiness. And this is why the law was a form of mercy. This is why these many instructions were a kind of grace to them, not ultimate grace. But, but God was showing them mercy in his kindness. He was making a way for sinners to come near to the presence of God. And so fast forward to Simon the Pharisee's house. Simon didn't have the eyes to see this. But on that day, the living, walking mercy of God had reclined at the table. This was no simple prophet. He was not a novelty to be observed and evaluated. He was no theologian to argue with. No, the holy God of Israel, whom no one could approach and still live. He had brought forth a new way for sinful men and women to draw near to God. The law, the tabernacle, the priests, the sacrifices, the mercy seat, these were shadows. They were shadows of God's mercy. But when the image of the invisible God came to dwell on the earth, when all of the shadows of the sacrificial system found their yes and their amen in the God-man Jesus, at that point, the mercy seat was now flesh and blood seated on the floor of Simon's house. Paul talks about Jesus this way. In Romans 3, he says, verse 23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. They are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. In verse 25, God presented him, Jesus, as the mercy seat by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness. The mercy seat, the propitiation. Mercy is on the scene. The forgiveness of the Father is available. All those who once felt hopeless and afraid to draw near to the presence of a holy God, come now and see. And when the doors of God's mercy, when, they're, when he seemed unapproachable and his mercy is, is, is flung open, to the broken heart of a sinner. Sometimes all you can do is stand and cry. But we see two responses to the, the mercy that Jesus brings. 
On one hand, Simon sitting at a distance, sticking to his self-righteousness, separating from the woman. Why? Because he doesn't understand the vast holiness of God. And therefore, he doesn't need the mercy of God. You want a sure way to miss the mercy of God and conclude in your heart one of two things. He's not that great or I'm not that bad. The Pharisee reduced God's holiness to obeying achievable, man-made commands. In basketball terms, instead of acknowledging that he couldn't dunk, the Pharisee lowered the goal. In his mind, he didn't have a sin problem. And when sin isn't your problem, mercy isn't your biggest need. And then we see the woman so aware of the gap between her sinfulness and God's perfection so that when God's mercy arrives, all she can do is cling to her Savior. The only one who could give such mercy, who could bridge such a gap. She clings to him and she weeps. Why? Because how is this possible? How is this kind of forgiveness available? And I think this is, the, this is kind of the, the emotional tenor that, that the Apostle Paul has at the, at the end of Romans chapter 11 when he's just blown away by God and his vastness how big he is, and yet he's still merciful. This is, this is Paul putting all of this together at the end of chapter 11. He's just almost flabbergasted. He says in verse 33, oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments, how untraceable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? And who has ever given to God that he should be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever, amen. This is him rejoicing. God is so massive and perfect. How how could I even fathom it? And yet, that God had mercy. He had mercy on us. And so he goes on in verse one of chapter 12. Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, this God had mercy on you. So I urge you to present your bodies as living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. And view of mercy. Why would you give him anything less than all of your heart? And all of your life? And all of your love? How could we give him less? Which leads to number three. How, how will we respond? At the end of verse 47, Jesus said, her many sins have been forgiven. That's why she loved much. But the one who is forgiven little loves little. Then he said to her, your sins are forgiven. This is beginning to make more sense, isn't it? This isn't Jesus saying your sins are forgiven because you came to me and you cried so much and you you washed my feet. No, that's not what Jesus is saying. No, no, we, we know what's happening. We can feel her motivation. She knew her many sins. She knew her sins better than the Pharisee knew her sins. But she knew that Jesus had forgiven her. That's why it tasted so good. That's why she had no other response. So whether she had just heard the news that day or whether she had understood it days before, 
she had understood something that will change anyone. That no matter what you've done, you can be clean. No matter what you've done, you can have hope. You can have peace. You can have a future. You can be made new. Your sins can be forgiven. And you can be loved by the Father in heaven. Jesus had forgiven her. And when she believed that, something really good broke inside of her. And her heart became like that jar, broken open and spilling out into the room, spilling out at the feet of Jesus. Tears, love flowing out, thanksgiving flowing out. There was a fragrant offering of worship happening as this perfume filled the room. Christian, this is your life. Did you know that your sins are forgiven? Did you know that you could do nothing to earn it? Nothing to convince God. There was no ladder you could have climbed, no righteous quota you could have fulfilled. There's no perfect loving of neighbor you could have accomplished, no perfect raising of children that you could have achieved. Nothing would ever be enough. Nothing could cover the gap between you and the creator. But God, in his mercy, by the death and resurrection of his son, the father receives you. And when you, when you really get that, like when it really gets down in you, the alabaster jar that is your heart and your life and your worship, it flows out. Love flows out toward the Father, sometimes with tears. So, so let me end with this. Why doesn't it happen sometimes? Why for some of us is this not a reality? What, what prevents unrestrained love and joy from flowing out of the hearts of many who, who would say, yes, I'm redeemed by Jesus. Why do we love little? Read again in verse 47. Her many sins have been forgiven. That's why she loved much. But the one who is forgiven little loves little. I think Jesus is using some hyperbole here. Because who in this story has been forgiven little? Was it the Pharisee? Was he forgiven little? Was he cleansed a little of his sin? No, not even a little. I I believe Jesus is pointing us toward a giant caution. And I'm gonna call this uh, danger number one. Danger number one. I I think this is the common danger of the Christian. And it's this. I only have a few sins. I'm not a big deal. I'm really pretty good. That's the moralism of our hearts sometimes, isn't it? Look, the scales balance out in my favor. I'm glad Jesus died for me. That's great. But I don't have a lot to forgive these days. I spend enough time on social media to know there's a lot more crazy people than me. I'm all right. 
They have problems, but I'm pretty good. My sin is relatively little. And what a danger that is. This is the danger of cultural, comfortable Christianity. Friends, don't be deceived. If you find yourself in this category, in the, in the at least I'm more godly than those big sinners out there category, that's a deception. In doing that, you've minimized the perfection of God. There is only one kind of Christian, the kind that has been forgiven a debt that is wide as the Grand Canyon. There are no petty crimes in the economy of God's righteousness. If you have sinned in only one thing, James says, then you stand guilty of the entirety of God's law. If we do not see our great sin, our great sin before the holiness of God, then we'll never be able to revel in the great mercy that he offers. When was the last time that you were overcome by God's mercy? Do you find it possible sometimes to to hear about God, to sing about God, to be around his people and, and still feel relatively unmoved? Do you see others raising their hands, weeping when they speak of God's kindness and and really, you just don't feel it. You feel nothing. And I think what we can do sometimes in those moments is, is we can convince ourselves, you know what I really need? I just really need a better Bible reading plan. I, I really need a new, passionate worship song. That's what I need. I need a more exciting church service. I need a more dynamic pastor. I need better events. I need more meaningful experiences with God. That will spur my love for the Lord. That will will bring it out of me. Church, this isn't it. If we are not convinced that our sin required God's mercy, love will not flow out of us. Calvin said, until men really apprehend how much they owe to the mercy of God, they will never with a right feeling worship him, nor be effectually stimulated to fear and obey him. So when was the last time you really felt the weight of your sin? When was the last time you wept, grieved, by how far you'd gone from the Lord? When was the last time that you, that you fell to your knees knowing that, God, if it wasn't for your mercy, I would be a goner. I would be condemned, doomed. Can I, can I humbly suggest that if you feel that lack of love for God, a lack of prayer and meeting with him, a lack of joy over his word, a lack of desire for him. Maybe, you, maybe deep down you just think you're good. Maybe it's easier to talk about grace as a theological concept than to acknowledge that you really need it, that you really require it. Look again. Look again to God. Look and see his holiness. 
don't, don't skim over those chapters in Exodus and just go, ah, that's God. That's how big he is. Look to his holiness. Confess and repent. Not just from the idea of sin, but like actual sins. Current sins. What's the secret thing in your heart, the, the secret sin of your heart that, that no one else knows, only you know? Your spouse doesn't even know. What's the thing you're most ashamed of that you don't want anybody else to know? Confess it. Feel the weight of that sin. Let it, let it rest on you for a second. Not so that you're condemned by it, not so that it crushes you, but so that you might remember, oh, he's forgiven me. He receives me. He loves me. God, you've been merciful to me. You died. Jesus died for me. We will never manufacture love for God until we are overcome by the kind of mercy that was required to welcome unworthy sinners like us so that we might now be children, children of God. And then lastly, danger number two, and I think this is sometimes the danger of those who have never believed. Maybe you don't think you're good at all. Uh, just as I think there's a danger in, in seeing yourself as, as just a petty criminal before God, there's also danger in believing the lie that, that somehow that you're, you're beyond the mercy of God. When I see God's holiness, I just think, man, he wouldn't want anything to do with me. His holiness is immense, but his mercy is vast. Friend, I don't care what it is that you have done, whether you've killed or hated, whether you've murdered, whether you've dishonored your parents, whether you've committed adultery, whether you have found satisfaction and, and, and meaning in drugs and drunkenness, whether you run after pornography, whether you've lied, lusted, judged others, raped, cheated others, abused others, been angry, prideful, self-righteous, or you just simply thought you were better than everybody else. Nothing that you have done has placed you outside of the mercy of God. He, his mercy is wide enough for you if you would just come to him. And if you would come to him, he, he takes every sin, no matter how small, no matter how secret, no matter how public, each sin a violation of his holiness and each sin taken by Jesus to the cross. His mercy is wide. And if you come to him, it's wide enough for you. If you trust in him, then you can sit down at the feet of your Savior today, forgiven, set free, a new life. And you can hear him say the words that he said to this woman, your sins are forgiven. Your faith has saved you. Go now, live now, go in peace as a child of God. Let me pray for us. Oh Lord, would you help the, the truth of, of your vast mercy 
sink deeply into our souls. And Father, would it, be, would it be the remedy for the crushing weight of our sin that we've tried to push away, that we've tried to ignore, that we, that we don't even want to think about, but God, you have taken it on. And you've invited us in to receive your mercy. You've invited us in to receive what Jesus has done for us. God, would you help us not to run from that today? If there's anyone here who would, who would just say, I, I just don't want, I can't do it, it's too heavy, it's too hard. Would you just break through that now? And would you help them to know, no, it's peace. It's forgiveness, it's joy, it's life. God, would you draw, would you draw us to you? Father, we love you. Would you lead us now as we go to your table, as we take the meal? And would you lead us to believe and to worship? Amen.